Well, good morning. It's, uh, my family and I are happy to be here with you all. And I'm, I'm thankful to be able to open the Word of God with you all this morning as we continue in, in worship. Um, our scripture text is from the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 1. So if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, chapter 3, just the first verse is, is our scripture text. And as you're turning there, um, I just noticed in the providence of God that a few weeks ago when I was invited to preach here and I selected this text, I didn't even realize I was preaching on Father's Day. And uh, this text in God's providence is about the fatherhood of God. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's uh, funny in that way in God's providence that, that uh, this is the text that we have this morning. And a great text it is for us to examine. So let's uh, look at 1 John uh, chapter 3. 1 John 3, uh, just verse 1. This is God's word. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Our Father... In heaven, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word here. We thank you for this great verse that is such a joy, such a comfort to us, your children. We, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love for us, that you would bring us into your family, that we would be the children of the God of the universe. So I pray, Lord, that as we look through this text, that our minds will be fixed on you, that we will focus on your love and what this text that you revealed uh, means, what it says, and that we will grow closer to you as we worship you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know from experience that you, know, you can look at something, but then you can really look at something. You know, if you, if you think of a, a, a piece of art, like a painting, a masterpiece, you can look at it, okay, that's, that's the picture. But then you can really look at it, where you examine it, where you're tracing out the lines, you're seeing uh, what, it's, what the composition is of the painting, really studying the masterpiece, so you can really understand it in depth. Or, you know, maybe you've take, taken a, a flower in your hands, you've plucked a flower, you can look at it, there's a flower, you know what it looks like. But then you can take it and you can hold it up to the light and you can see the sun shining through it and the different hues of color, the, the veins running through the petals. You know, all the different parts of the flower that are so beautiful and yet in God's wisdom so functional at the same time. You can, you can look at something and then you can really study something, really examine something, really not just take a cursory look, but a deep, hard look at something. And the same thing is true when it comes to the love of God. We can look at the love of God. We can say, yes, I know that God loves his people. We can have a cursory understanding of it and really then a cursory appreciation of the love of God. But we can fail to really look at the love of God and try to grasp you know, more and more uh, glimpses of the love of God as it's revealed in Scripture. So we can really, as Christians, I think we often do, fail to take a deep dive into knowing God's love for us. 
And, and I think that this you know, general, I think, failure on our part to really focus in on the love of God is, I believe, one of the major reasons why Christians often lack joy. If you're looking there in 1 John, in 1 John 1, 4, in the beginning of the book, as he introduces the book, he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So one of the main purposes of this letter that John writes is for our joy to be full. And the text here in 1 John 3, 1 is certainly one of the texts in this book that should bring us great joy. Now, for some in, in the church, and sometimes for whatever reason in a Reformed churches or Reformed theology world, sometimes talking about the love of God can almost be viewed as if it's a bad word, like, like you shouldn't really go there. I remember hearing uh, Paul Washer tell a story one time. If you don't know who Paul Washer is, he's a Reformed Baptist preacher. Uh, he's known, on, uh, known for you know, fiery, passionate, uh, convicting preaching. So he told a story one time that he was at his church, and he's not the pastor of the church. Um, he, just, he goes around and preaches kind of evangelistically and at conferences and things like that. So he was telling this story that he was teaching Wednesday night services uh, at his local church. And some fa- a family had come to visit the church, and they went to these Wednesday nights where Paul Washer was teaching three weeks in a row. And then after those three weeks, this family went to the pastor of the church, who's not Paul Washer, but the, the pastor of the church. And they said, hey, uh, hey, pastor, ha- has Brother Paul compromised? You know, ha- has he gone soft on us? And the pastor says, well, why do you say that? And they say, well, pastor, all that Paul Walsh is preaching on is the love of God week after week after week. And you can see the assumption of the people then, right, is that if, if, if a man's going to be focusing on the love of God, then that's somehow a compromise when it comes to the, being faithful to the word of God. You know, some people, they may have a, a notion that if, that if you're not preaching uh, on, on the wrath of God and, and reprobation and things like that, that somehow you've compromised. Now, those are, of course, true doctrines and should be preached without embarrassment. But what actually would be a compromise of Scripture is if you left out one of the major themes of the entire Bible, which is the love of God for his people. You cannot skip the main thing. Okay? So the love of God to the Christian is, is everything. It's about time that we view it as such. See, if we don't value the love of God right now, then hopefully by the end of this sermon and as we continue on in our Christian lives, we'll learn to value it more and more and more. It's something that I need, it's something that you need, and it's something here that this text is aiming at for us, that we would focus in, laser focus, on the love of God. And that is the theme of this sermon, that's the theme of this verse. So we're going to take a deeper dive into the love of God and not just take that, that quick glance that sometimes we're prone to do. So, so look again there at verse 1, 1 John 3, 1. I'll read it again. He says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. I'll just stop there for a moment. Notice the first word in the verse, see, or behold. Okay, so John is here just calling us to attention. He's saying, look. Focus in here. The New American Standard translates the next phrase. It says, see how great a love the Father has. Um, But really, to be a little more accurate with the translation, it's see what kind of love 
the Father has bestowed on us. So he's saying, look at something, behold, I want you to focus in on what kind of love the Father has for us. Now that phrase, what kind of, is a phrase often used in scripture to express astonishment. Uh, For example, you remember the, the episode where Jesus is on the sea in the boats with his disciples and the storm comes in and they're scared they're going to drown they're 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 fearful and then jesus calms the storm by rebuking it right he, he calls out to it remember what the disciples response was in matthew 8 27 they said it says the men were amazed and said what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him that's the same phrase what kind of man is this that this man is astonishing We've never seen a man like this. He's out of this world. He's amazing. He's spectacular. And that's the same phrase that John is using here to describe the love of God. What kind of love the Father has bestowed on us? What kind of love the Father's given to us? It's beyond comprehension, he's saying. It's amazing. It's stunning. It's mind-blowing. It's a love we've never experienced anywhere else. It's a love we've never even heard of anywhere else. We're just floored by this love. Like it's out of this world. Absolutely spectacular. What kind of love the Father has for us. So, so John, in other words, he's just erupting in astonishment and praise to God for his amazing love. He's saying, look, everybody, look at what kind of love the Father has for us. See or behold, look at it. It's astonishing. Now, again, this is something that you and me as Christians need to make our lifeblood of daily living, is to heed that imperative. That's a command. Look or behold, see what kind of love the Father has for us. We need to take a step back, stand and look at the love that God has for you if you are a Christian. I mean, if we would just do that, if we would take a step back and really focus in on this, how do you think that would affect your life as a Christian? I mean, if you took an awestruck look at God's love, how would that affect your anxiety, for example? Or your sense of guilt over your sin? Or your assurance of salvation? If you would stand back and look at the love of God, how would it affect your worries over your family? Or just your stress from day-to-day living? Your fear of man? How would it affect your devotion to the Lord? I mean, would not a deeper understanding and an awestruck wonder at the love of God just you know, downright revitalize and reshape and reform your whole life as a Christian? John says, behold, look at this. So, so in obedience to that, that's what we're going to aim to do this morning. We're going to look deep into the love of God here. Behold what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, John here wants us to focus uh, specifically on one thing uh, and one way that, the God, that the God loves us, and that is in adoption. That God's love for his people is truly amazing and always is obvious, but he wants us to focus in on adoption. Every part of our salvation, of course, including adoption, is motivated by the love of God. So just taking a step back for a second, you know, God's electing of us, his electing love, that's motivated by love, that we're chosen in Christ by the Father before creation. For example, in Romans eight twenty nine, the Apostle Paul says, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, that word foreknew means an intimate, loving knowledge of the person. So this is basically saying, since God loved you beforehand, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Our, our calling, our regeneration, our being born again and drawn by the Father to the Son, that's also motivated by the love of God. For example, in Titus 3, 4 to 6, it says, this is a great passage, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So that, that all of salvation, but he focuses in on there, on regeneration, being born again by the Holy Spirit, that is motivated by the kindness and love of God for his people. Of course, our justification, our being declared righteous in the sight of God, forgiven of all of our sins, that's also motivated by the love of God. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So we see that all these different areas of, of or all these different things that God does in salvation for us are all motivated by the love of God. But John here in 1 John 3 wants to focus on something that in a way really takes all of that and goes a step beyond it, is that John wants us to focus on adoption that God would, would call us his sons and his daughters. He says, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. So we're going to focus in on the love of God and adoption. Okay, so the question then raised is, what is adoption? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks that question, and it answers it this way. It says, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now, that, that's a dense answer, and it's full of implications. Uh, first of all, God's adopting us as children is a gracious act of God. It's, not, it's an act. It's a, it's a one-time act that continues on. It's not a process where I'll put you on probation and see if I'll accept you as a son or a daughter later on. It's I declare you a son or a daughter, and that's it forever. Okay, adoption happens and it continues. Okay, it's an act of God. It's a gracious act of God. It's by his grace that he receives in that one-time act his children forever. Now, it says here in the passage that we are called his children. That's what God does in adoption is that he says to, to people that he has saved, you are my children. Now, that raises a few questions about adoption. What did God do? so that he could adopt us. Now, that's an important question. What did God do so that he could adopt us? For unbelievers and for uh, you know, more liberal theologians, that question would not even be relevant to such people because the concept of adoption wouldn't be necessary in their view. Why is that? Because people, a lot of times by nature, just think that everybody's a child of God just by existing, that there's a child of God by nature. But of course, if that were the case, then this concept of adoption would be totally unnecessary. It'd be entirely redundant. I mean, it's like trying to adopt your own children. Why would you do that? They're already your children, right? So when God says he adopts people, he's adopting children 
that are not his children by nature. So we're told that God does adopt us in Christ and that we're not his children by nature. Therefore, adoption is something that is necessary and that God does. It's not redundant. So the question is, again, what did God do in order to adopt us? Now, again, really all of God's saving work brings us up to the point where we can be adopted into God's family. Let's just, for example, focus on two things that God did so that we could be adopted and called his children. Again, let's take a step back and talk about election. Okay, we're told in Ephesians 1, 5 to 6, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved, or in Jesus So in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That is that God, before creation, chose his people to be his sons and daughters. So if you're a believer in Christ, then God chose you to be in his family, to be his child. So your adoption by God is not an afterthought. He wanted you as his child from before the foundation of the world. Get this, it's not because there's anything good in you or because you're worthy of it. He looked and he wanted his people as his children because he is gracious, because in love he predestined us for adoption. Now, just by application, I don't, I don't know, you know what kind of earthly father that you had. Maybe you had an excellent, great, uh, godly father. Or maybe you had a distant and, and negligent father. Or maybe you just had an abusive father. But but whatever type of father you had, whether they were characterized by godliness or wickedness or somewhere in between, every earthly father will fail to some degree. And I just want to say that no matter what the failings were of your earthly father, the love of your heavenly father just drowns out all the failings, all the sin of earthly fathers. It is that great that he would choose you to be his son or his daughter. He's saying here, you were desired by God, not because you've done well, but because he is loving, because he is gracious. And love he predestined. He chose just out of love, not because there was something lovely in you. And because his love is not conditioned upon your performance, his love for you will never change. That's not something that is fickle. Because it's not because of something in you, it's because of something in him, his own love. He predestined us for adoption. So election is something that, that you know, is a prerequisite before adoption. A second thing that God did that we want to look at here so that we could be adopted is that he justified his people. He justified them. So because God chose his people in love, in Christ, to be adopted, he also planned the means for you to be acceptable to him as a son or daughter. What that means is this, is that in order for you to become his adopted child, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to save you. We saw that again in Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent Jesus in love so that you could be justified, be acceptable to him. In 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
See, it's not our love, it's God's love that he would send his only son by nature, Jesus, to be the propitiation. That means that Jesus went in the place and took the wrath that you deserve. And the wrath was turned away from you and it was put on Jesus instead. God did that in love. We're told earlier in 1 John that that Jesus is our legal advocate. He's our intercessor. He stands before God in the court. You have that courtroom scene where God is the judge and Jesus stands up. Christ stands up and holds up his own death on the cross in the place of his people as the only basis for their legal acceptance with God. His own righteousness as the basis for our acceptance with the Father. Jesus' righteousness, his taking the penalty on the cross for our sins, that's how we're justified. We're justified by his blood. We stand before God clothed in Jesus' righteousness so that God can say he will not charge our sins against us anymore because they've been charged against Jesus in our place. He even says, I will not remember your sins against you anymore, meaning he will not treat you as a guilty sinner anymore. We are legally, in the courtroom, righteous in God's sight because of justification, because Jesus has taken the penalty on himself and put his righteousness on our account, so that before God we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So by justification, we are legally righteous before God, but adoption just takes this to the next level. It goes a step further. God the judge not only declares us righteous in the courthouse and free from all penalty and all punishment that we deserve for our sins, but not only does he say that, but then afterwards he just declares us, he he, he gives us adoption papers. He presents us with adoption papers that say, not only are you declared righteous, but the judge will graciously take you into his family and bring you home with him forever. So justification makes us legally acceptable, but God takes it a step further and brings you into, into his house as his child. Now that brings us to the next question. So God, God has adopted us. He has done everything necessary so we can be adopted. He's chosen us. He's justified us. Now what are the benefits of being adopted? What, what, what is this greatness that God has given to us in calling us his children? We're told, in, again, in that, in that catechism question, we get all the privileges of sonship, of being a son of God, all the privileges. And there are just so many privileges to be a child of the Father. Let's just look at some of these. First of all, sons receive, as sons of God being adopted, they receive the knowledge that they are sons of God. This is basic, but this is important. Romans 8.15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, But you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So you know that when you're a Christian, you know you're a child of God. And because of that, you don't fear condemnation for your sins anymore. Because God loves you as his child. Similarly, Galatians 4, 6, he says, Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, believers when they're converted, they have an understanding that they've now been received into God's family and they regard God as their father. That's how we pray to him, our father in heaven. The one, they recognize God as the one whom they depend on and the one they desire to please. You know, actually in 1 John earlier, in 1 John 2, 13, John addresses new converts 
in the audience, and he says, I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. It's real basic. New converts may not know a lot about the Bible, but they do know that God is their Father. So we, we get the benefit of knowing that we're a child of God. Another benefit of adoption is God's provision and him giving us good gifts. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, he says, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will not, will give, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? It's that argument from the lesser to the greater. We're evil fathers on earth. How much better is God the Father, who is perfect, able to provide for your physical and your spiritual needs? He knows how to give good things to his children. It's it's a no-brainer for God. Therefore, he can say, and this is an amazing verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, God knows how to give good gifts to you so much that he can work everything that happens in your life for your good. That's how awesome a father you have. Another benefit is the care, the compassion, and the forgiveness of God your father. Psalm 103, 12 to 13, famous verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You know, if you're a parent, you know that when your child sins, you're not aiming at condemnation for your child. You you, you don't want them to die, right? You have compassion on them. You want them to repent of their sin, to follow the Lord, and you want to just lavish forgiveness on them, to have reconciliation. And the Lord, likewise, but even more so in a perfect way, is forgiving. He does not condemn his own children. He has compassionate forgiveness for them. A perfect forgiveness without fail. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are removed. The perfect, forgiving father. Another benefit of adoption as God's children, and this is a benefit, is the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of of the Lord. I'm going to turn here real quick. It's a little bit of a longer passage. It's Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Hebrews 5, 12, 5 through 11. A great text in the New Testament on the discipline of the Lord. It says this. This is crucial for your life. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which addressed you as sons. This is a quote from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So first of all, we have to understand, the Lord's discipline of his people is not motivated by hatred. It's the exact opposite. It is motivated by his love for his people. He goes on to explain it. Verse 7, Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see his point. He's saying, in fact, the fact that God does discipline you proves that you are his son. 
because a father disciplines his own children, not other people's children. If you are without discipline from the Lord, that's evidence that you're not even his child. Because God is a perfect father and a good father disciplines his children. He says in verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. This is the key here. Okay? So, look, we have earthly fathers. They disciplined us. They tried their best. You know, we respected them. We would, we would submit to their authority. Saying, but what you have here with God, that when he disciplines you, his discipline, when he causes you grief, is motivated purely out of love. It's not motivated by revenge or anger or annoyance or things like that. It is out of love is the motivation. And guess what? It's perfectly for your good. Perfectly for your good. And what is that? That you may share in his holiness. He explains it. You know this from experience, I'm sure. Verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God, in his love, he loves his people so much that he doesn't let his children go wild and wayward. He disciplines them in his love so that they would share in that holiness. That Yes, it may not be pleasant, the discipline may hurt, but later on it yields righteousness in your life. It yields Christ-likeness in your life. So, you know, when in the moment, it may feel like discipline's a negative thing. But really, you need to train yourself to say, no, this is an expression of God's love for me as his beloved child. It's not that God enjoys causing you grief. Just like, you know, you don't enjoy, you don't, you don't get pleasure out of spanking your children, right? Not in the act itself. You do it because you love them and you want them to follow the Lord. And that's exactly why the Lord disciplines us, because he wants us to turn from our sin and turn closer to him. In Lamentations 3, God says this, it says, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, and he does, then he will have compassion, according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. So there's two things you need to know. God does grieve you. He will cause you pain as discipline. But you need to understand the motivation for that is not because he loves seeing you cry. It's not because he loves the pain that you feel. It's because he loves you. It's out of the abundance of his love and kindness that he would train you and not let you go off into the paths of death. He will keep you from running off into sin by that disciplining hand. And he's going to make you more like Christ. I mean, when he causes you grief... It's only because he loves you and because he's compassionate towards you. And he wants to make you more like Christ, which is your greatest good. And I got to say, we got to learn this. He says in there, quoting from Proverbs, he says, don't uh, despise the discipline of the Lord or, or regard it lightly. You should really receive it and want it. And the reason for that is this. You know, if you're a Christian, I know that you would say, I just want to put sin to death. I want to be rid of my sin and be more like Jesus. That's a great attitude. But if you hold that attitude and at the same time don't want the discipline of the Lord, you can't have the two together. Because the discipline of the Lord is the means by which he trains you to be rid of sin and to be more like Christ. It's his love because he's a father, you're the child, and every good father disciplines his child. 
Proverbs 20, verse 30 says, Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. When God strikes you in discipline, that is so that he would train you to be more like Christ, to hate your sin more, to hate your, or to remove your love for the world more, and to cling more to him. It's that rod of discipline that teaches you to kill sin. So it's a great benefit of adoption, that we are his children, that he cares for us, that he would discipline us. Another great benefit of adoption, of course, is the inheritance that God has promised us. In Galatians 4, 7, he says, Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our inheritance, of course, is eternal life in the new heavens, in the new earth. In 1 Peter, he describes this, verses 3 and 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's the part. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's saying, God has saved you, he's made you born again, and he has prepared this inheritance for you. This imperishable, undefiled inheritance that will not fade away, that's in heaven, waiting for you. In Revelation 21, 6 and 7, it says, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And hear this. He who, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. In other words, he who abides in Christ by faith will receive the inheritance of eternal life promised to him through Christ. That's the free gift of God the Father to his sons and daughters. He will be your God, and you will be his son. So when you consider just some of these things, of all these things that God just lavishes upon you, that he would call you his child and then give you all these benefits, you you really ought to be asking, well, why would God love me in this way? Why would God send his one and only son to die for putrid sinners, to, to justify them, and then to take it to the next level and adopt them into his household and then just give them every good thing? Remember what he says in Romans 8, 31? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, he didn't hold back his son to save you, to make you his child. He'll give you every good thing in Christ. Why does he do that? And the answer is just this, because he loves you, period. Again, it's not because you're worthy. It's not because you're lovely. It's not because you're good. It's because he wanted to. That's the stunning thing. I mean, in, in, in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It's just who he is. He does these things because it's just who he is. We see in this text, we're adopted by God right now. And, and John's saying, hey, this should bring absolute astonishment to you. What kind of love the Father has bestowed on us? Look at this. What manner of love is this? 
that God would call us his children? And he says, and such we are. We are his children. So to sum this up and, and to show the, the great privilege of adoption, we just need to understand. The fact is, since we are children of God, God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Jesus said this in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 23. He says that you sent me, you the Father sent me, and loved them, that is the church. You loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says, Father, you have loved your people even as you have loved me. I have to agree with uh, Steve Lawson here who said about this, if this wasn't in the Bible, I couldn't believe this. But it is in the Bible, so we must believe it. That, that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. He loves me, his adopted son, as much as he loves his natural son, Jesus. Really? Yeah. You are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. In God's sight, he has nothing against you. You are wrapped up in Jesus. You are hidden in Jesus. He accepts you as his perfect son, with whom he is well pleased. You're, you're wearing the prince's clothes. You're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So the application here, first of all, is this. Just stand in amazement at the love of God. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying here in this text. Joel Beakey said this. Do you stand in awe of this wonderful love of the Father? Holy wonder and amazement is an important part of Christian experience. One of the devil's tactics is to dull our sense of wonder, convincing us that we only feel such wonder in the initial stages of becoming a Christian. It's true that the sinner experiences a special sense of joy and wonder when he first comes to know Christ. We often refer this refer to this as uh, a time of one's first love. But what he's saying is, is that this joy that you have as a new Christian should not be consigned only to new converts. In fact, it should grow, this joy should grow as you grow in the Lord. Beaky goes on, he says, we must meditate on scripture if we would have our hearts burn within us. That's what the pilgrims on the way to Emmaus said to each other after Christ had opened the scriptures to them. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures, Luke 24, 32? They asked in astonishment, is it any wonder that some believers have lost their sense of wonder and amazement over the gospel when they so seldom study the Bible prayerfully and meditatively? I mean, that's a rebuke for all of us there from Pastor Beakey. We need to be in the word. We need to be looking at the love of God as it's revealed in the word. John says, look at the love of God. And how can we look at it? By getting in to the word. There's really, there's no other way to look into the love of God than to see what he has said about himself. You need to read what he said and motivate, or and, motiv- and, and with this motivation, study the Bible. We should, if you need a motivation to study the Bible, let it be this, that you would know the love of God better. That is a great motivation to study scripture. So we've seen here that we're adopted by, uh, by God and all the benefits of that. But look at the second half of verse 1 there, 1 John 3, 1, where it says, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. This is the second application for us based upon this fact of adoption. 
Since Christ, God's son, was unknown to the world, God's adopted children won't make sense to the world either. The, the objective fact is this, is that if you're a Christian, you're just not in the same family as the world. That's the point. You're in God's family now, and the world's just not going to understand you. Jesus was not from the world. He was from the Father. And now you are in the Father's family too. The world did not know Jesus. It says in John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Likewise, for us who are God's adopted children, we're not going to be known by the world. And really, that's the way that it's supposed to be. You're of a different family. You're of a different world. Again, Beaky said this. He says, the reason the world does not know the children of God is because it does not know Jesus. This reaction of the world is evidence of the believer's adoption into God's family. For the world did not know Jesus either. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was in the world, which was created by him, but the world knew him not. The world did not recognize him as the Son of God, and ultimately it crucified him. When a sinner is born again and brought into, the, into God's family, he comes to know the great blessings of deliverance in Christ. But the believer also discovers that worldly people no longer understand him. And that's the, that's the point of this section here, this, this part of this verse. In fact, Beaky told a story regarding this, that when he was converted as a teenager, he, uh, his, friendship, his former friendships just broke off. And he, I had a similar experience myself when I was a teenager and was converted. And he said that one of his former friends told him, he says, Joel, I just don't understand you. I thought I knew you, but I don't. He says, it's like we're living in two different worlds. And that's exactly right. We are living in two different worlds or two different families, really. You see, since God has made you his child, he's adopted you. And he's adopted you into his family, but he's adopted you from another father. Jesus said this in John eight forty four: you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Likewise, later on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, it says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Uh, one commentator said, the child of God's unknown by the world because they have a different father, Satan. Okay, so you have two different families with two different fathers. And the children of God and the children of Satan, guess what? They don't mix. The world, the world is blinded by their father, Satan. They're not going to understand the children of God. As Steve Lawson illustrated, this is, this is good. He says, the world doesn't understand, doesn't understand you. It doesn't understand why you get up on Sunday morning and get dressed and drive through traffic to come to a building to sing hymns of all things that are sometimes hundreds of years old, and to listen to a man preach at you from a book that's minimally 2,000 years old and even older, and then to reach into your pocket and pull out your hard-earned money and to support the ministry of that church. You know, why wouldn't you rather be at the golf course or sleeping in or, or spending your money on yourself? I mean, they, what's wrong with you, the world would think. The world just doesn't understand why Christians, you know, would stand outside an abortion clinic week after week, to, to call out to people who, by and large, would just curse at them and yell at them and all sorts of things like that. I mean, why would you do that? Why would Christians spend time on, on Saturday mornings, you know, handing out tracts to people? Why would you do that? Why would a Christian, for example, 
refuse a promotion at work because it would require him to pick up his family and to move to a different city where there are no uh, sound, biblically sound churches? Why would he refuse higher pay and more privileges because there's no good church in that new city? It just doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. I mean, why would a Christian base every life decision on an ancient book? See, the world's life's motivations, we're told earlier in 1 John, they're to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is, they want to indulge their bodies, they want to possess things, and then they want to impress everybody with what they have. It's all about me, me, me. It's the idol of self. That's what the world is living for. See, a Christian no longer is living for that. Now they're living for their father and their new family. Anything that doesn't fit with the world's desires is not going to make sense to them. Self-denial, unselfishness, self-sacrificial decisions, it's not going to make sense to the world. It just doesn't understand us, namely because we're not of the world. We're not in their family. We're on an entirely different path. We're aiming at pleasing our father, and they're aiming at pleasing theirs. And our fathers could not be more opposite. God versus Satan. In fact, the minute the world starts understanding our way of living, that could indicate there's something wrong with the way you're walking with God. They understand all of the, your, your uh, life's path. Either that or that person is about to become a Christian. It's got to be one of the two. So, so in conclusion, since we are God's children, we're told here, he says, let us aim to please our Father who has loved with a perfect, eternal love. And to not concern ourselves with what the world thinks about us. It doesn't understand us anyway. What the world thinks life is about is way off base. The Bible describes them as walking in the darkness. They don't even know what they're stumbling over. So we, we should, with John here, as he says, stand in wonder at the Father's love that he has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then let us aim to serve and please our Father and not to follow after what the world is following after. God calls us his children, and such we are. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful to you for this great love that you have bestowed upon us. We're barely even scratching the surface of understanding how great your love is for us. This is something that we will be gazing into for eternity, your perfect love for us and all that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you will help us to focus on your love, to behold the love that you have for us, that we would be called your children. What a, what a privilege that is, that you would just do that because you want to, because you're loving and gracious and not because we're worthy of any of it. And Lord, again, I pray that because we are your children, that we would not seek to please the world or to go along with the world's goals. We recognize the world is on a a different path, aiming to please a different father, not you. And I pray that we would know that we're of different families and that they will not understand why we aim to please you, but I pray that we will have a focus on you, that as we see your love for us, As your word says, we love because you first loved us, that we would keep your commandments and obey you, because if we love you, we will keep your commandments. I pray that you will help us 
to be devoted to you and thankfulness and love to you because you have first loved us with this great love. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.